Beatitudes series today. Uh, I hope you guys have been enjoying this series already. I know for me, I've, I've personally, this has been one of my favorite series that we've done as a church. Uh, if you've missed any weeks, um, you can go to our website. We have a podcast where we have um, every week's messages recorded on there. Or you can, did you know, you could even subscribe uh, like on your iPhone and it comes every week right to your phone. I love it. Um, it's great. So make sure you check it out. Uh, we're about halfway through this series now uh, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And it's, it's been awesome. And we're going to be continuing with that today, talking, uh, talking more. I want to start off, though, uh, by just doing a, a quick preface on it. I've got an onion here, and this is kind of a quick, you know, elementary lesson, but I think it's really important for what I'm talking about today if you just keep in mind the idea of an onion. Now, I texted the staff, actually this morning, I'd forgotten to pick up an onion, and I was like, does anybody have an onion? And... I, kn- I knew this was going to happen. Matt texted back real quick, was like, you going to talk about Shrek? I was like, <laughs> Justin loves like Shrek, Shrek. So they knew that we were going to make a joke. So yes, we know onions have layers. Ogres also have layers. Yes, that's so. The, the thing about onions is, yes, they, they have layers. You know, you can, you can peel them off. You know, you can get to different layers. And, and the, the cool thing is... Um, you know, you, you peel it off, and it, it may look different. You see, like, the outside, it's, it's usually a little, a little darker. Um, but when you start peeling away some layers, uh, you know, it may look a little different. Uh, but it's still an onion. It still has the essence of an onion. No matter what layer you're at, it, may, it might be a little different. You start peeling it, you know, down. Uh, it might make you tear up a little bit. You know, it might have a di- different reaction based on what layer you're at. But still an onion. Like, this is pretty obvious. Still and onion. So I just want you to keep this in mind today with what we're talking about uh, when it comes to layers, that it's, you know, an onion, depending on what layer you're at, it's still an onion. It's still the same essence of an onion. So just keep that in mind. So a theme we've been examining so far in this series is the upside-down nature of the Beatitudes, that it's an upside-down understanding of your personal value. It's an upside-down understanding of success. It's an upside-down understanding of, of really God's love for you. When life seems to be at its worst, we can experience God's presence and his peace. I know for me, in the worst moments of my life, that's been the places where God has moved the most profoundly. And I don't think that's by accident. Um, I don't want to camp on this thought uh, too long, but you know, a common theological answer to you know, the questions of, you know, why does bad things happen to good people? Uh, usually is something along the lines of, you know, there's aspects of God's goodness, his joy that we can only experience uh, through different sufferings. And perhaps this is why Jesus says uh, we're blessed. You know, if it is true that there's nothing greater we can ever experience uh, than a deeper relationship with the God of the universe. If God has favorites, it would seem to be those uh, our world deems not worth our time, uh, status, uh, or mercy. Not that God doesn't love well-off people or that success or, you know, material things are inherently bad. Uh, you know, God made this world and it's losing. Uh, there, however, seems to be a reality that those who are, you know, quote-unquote losing uh, are often closer to the heart of God. 
Uh, you know, have you ever heard the idea, um, you know, this comes up in a couple of different ways, but kind of like the idea that like someone who's like, you know, a prostitute or an addict, you know, someone like that might actually be closer to God's heart uh, than just a Sunday Christian. You ever you heard that, you know, that kind of idea? Um, I want to examine this idea uh, about the Beatitudes by, by looking specifically at one this week, which is righteousness. So we're going to start off uh, with our, really the verse we're looking at this week, Matthew 5, 6. And it'll probably be up on your screens, yeah. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Our lives really are guided by what we desire. Uh, the philosopher James K.A. Smith says, we are what we love. We are what we love. Our destiny is shaped by what we love. So, for example, I desire to be fit and healthy. That's pretty fair. I also probably, if I'm honest, I also probably desire more to go down the road to the Suncrest Town Center to go to number one super buffet and eat pounds of coconut shrimp. But it's not hard to imagine what wins out if we're, if we're being really honest about what we're desiring. So that brings me to the question, what is righteousness? We, we talk about this, to hunger, Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, what is it? I like to think of it sort of like an onion, that if it's a word, especially if we're thinking in a biblical context, has many layers, and they're all correct. It's all righteousness. It's like an onion. And so we could, we could break it down to, I think, three things. Righteousness means right standing with God, a word called shalom, which we'll get to, which means peace, uh, and justice. And so we're going to break down each of those. I want to start with the first one, right standing with God. Jesus talks a lot about righteousness. You know, if we're in Matthew 5, he says a chapter later, uh, in chapter 6, verse 33, telling us to seek first his, meaning God's kingdom and righteousness, and all these things, you know, meaning normal life concerns, desires, will be given to you as well. His audience would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament. Uh, they would have been well aware that they were sinners and that they needed to atone for their sins. I would believe that they, wanted to, they would have wanted to know uh, what they needed to do to achieve right standing with God. And I think that this sounds a lot like us. You know, we're told throughout our lives to work hard and, and you can achieve things. Uh, it affects how we do Christianity, too, I really think. You know, got to be morally upright. You've got to be holy. Don't sin. Uh, don't have shame. Be perfect. Uh, but don't we struggle with that kind of thinking? Uh, you know, not because in trying to follow Jesus we, we don't care or that we even want to, to sin or to have sin in our life. But I think because, you know, we know how flawed we are. Uh, you know, we know we screw up. That being totally righteous uh, is one thing that even the best of us can't, can't quite figure out. So how do we follow this call uh, to righteousness if we're going to, to follow Jesus and understand this kingdom of God? We know we're flawed. We know um, that we screw up. And for me, I, as far as an example, I like to think about David. Uh, so that's where we're, we're really going to start with this morning, thinking about really the story of David. And I think we're all pretty you know, familiar with David's story um, even if you're not like a super, uh, you know, a love it or anything like that. Like David's story, I think, is one of the more popular Bible stories. Everybody knows, um, 
you know, shepherd boy who takes down the giant with the sling and the stone. You know, he's the unlikely chosen ones. He's like the runt of all his brothers. Uh, you know, he's the great young man of, of the highest integrity and love for God. You know, he has so much favor with God uh, that Saul, the king, becomes so paranoid that he tries to kill David. And we know that David becomes king. Uh, and among many things, he, he accomplishes the victory. He, re- he is able to return the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And it's this huge deal. And though even though he had a few critics, he seemed perfectly justified. He was the king uh, you know, to parade and dance the Ark into Jerusalem, wearing what scholars think was probably not much more than a speedo, if not completely naked. So, you know, imagine this. Think about this. It's like, you know, think if there's like, you know, a president of the United States, like something great happens, they're all hype, and they're like dancing naked down Washington. Like, this, this is like incredibly ridiculous. I mean, and even then it was like incredibly ridiculous. But David apparently can do no wrong. They're just like, it's just David. He brought the ark in. Like, it's, it's good. Um, David can do no wrong. It's crazy. But the thing is, we, we know the rest of David's story, too. It doesn't just end with him doing everything right, and he's perfect. Uh, we know the story of his adultery. We know that he had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed, and then he took her as, as his wife. Uh, we know that the prophet Nathan went and called out David over the matter uh, and speaks to, to God's anger at the atrocity. David had done something truly awful. Uh, so what happens next? Uh, why is it that we remember David as you know, a great example uh, and, and we remember David as being called a man after God's own heart. Well, uh, why do we remember that? Um, so we start in 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 13, we see David admit and, and repent of his sin before God. You know, he comes clean and, and he, fa- he faces the music. He admits his wrong. Nathan explains God has forgiven David, you know, but tragically later as a consequence, David's son dies. So what, is, what does David do then? Um, of course he mourns, but, but he also worships and praises God. Uh, he understands his failure uh, and the holiness of God. We don't deserve anything from God. David honestly humbles himself before God. I think there's something about bringing ourselves humbly before God uh, that he requires. Uh, I found what I think is an interesting connection. Think about the phrase, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I find it interesting that that Jesus uses that type of language. We desire food and drink for survival. We do. We crave them. Here he's telling us to crave righteousness. We know in the Psalms that David identifies who he is in light of who God is. He desires God's presence like food and drink at times. Go read the Psalms. It's, It's in there. Where else do we hear Jesus use this language? I want to jump um, several chapters ahead uh, and look at the passage, Matthew 26, 26. And this is, this is the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Eat of the bread, drink of the cup. 
eat of the bread, drink of the cup. Jesus is talking about himself here. Righteousness is found only in him, only through him. And that's the point. We're to crave Jesus like food and drink. As we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. He wants us to come to him like David did. Only through him, not through what we do, not through what we can earn, but only through Jesus and who he is, can we even begin to think that we can have right standing with God. Which brings me to another layer of righteousness when it comes to right standing, and that is peace. This right standing leads us into this important layer. There's a long-standing Jewish understanding of God's desire for the world. It's encapsulated by the word shalom, which translates to peace, but really means uh, much more. It means reconciliation, harmony, wholeness, incorrect working order. And this is God's desire, and it's, it's the message of the Beatitudes. God desires us to be reconciled to him. Jesus is our atonement and our way to righteousness, to right standing with him. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be getting to all the layers of righteousness. We wouldn't be getting to all the layers of the onion uh, if we just stopped with that understanding, though. And so I really want to uh, look at a, a larger passage. Um, so if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11, uh, it will be up on your screens as well. It's, it's a little chunk, so just bear with me. We're going to read through it, um, and then we'll talk some. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for, for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot in there. Uh, and we could, read, we could read that over and over. Uh, we would be missing God's heart if we, if we assumed he didn't care uh, about our world's issues uh, and the, the divisions between us as people. In a few weeks, we're going to be talking about the Beatitude of peacemaking. Uh, you'll come to find that the Beatitudes are all interrelated, really. Uh, sin and destruction are not God's plan for this world. And as the church, we're, we're called to be the light. We're called to be an example of peace. 
you know, a few weeks back, we, we talked about the presence of God, and we watched, you know, the music video, uh, which showed this area in Israel uh, where there's war going on all around in this one area, but there's this one area where there's a ceasefire. It's kind of a safe zone um, that both sides have agreed, okay, this area, this is, this is, you know, a peaceful, safe zone. You know, we're called to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. God cares um, not just that we have you know, a safe zone, uh, but he also cares about the wars going on all around us. We're not just meant to stay in, you know, in our peace, peaceful safe zone, but to, but to move out. Um, th- you know, if we remember, we talked about this, we carry his presence with us everywhere we go. It's not just sentiment, I don't think, when Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. You know, later in the Sermon on the Mount, God's desire is to see us reconciled to him and each other. We're stewards of this life and of this world and of our relationships. In Micah 6.8, we're told, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Which I think takes us to an even deeper layer of this understanding of righteousness, that it's right standing, which, which brings peace, which I think brings justice. In the Hebrew, the words for righteousness and justice are often mentioned together, often interchangeably. Right standing with God is what justice looks like. Peace in the world is what justice looks like. We know, however, you know, in, in, in a sin-stained world, you know, with an enemy that is, that is very real, um, that, that this isn't always the reality. Uh, there is injustice in the world, at home and abroad. You know, just this week, I'm sure everybody saw it, you know, 19 people were killed at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. You know, that's been all over it this week. Just this week also, martial law was declared in the Philippines. It's all crazy over there. Did you know that in the world, this is from 2015, so I know this number is higher, uh, that there are 65.3 million people who are refugees or internally displaced. There are, this is a conservative estimate, 45 million slaves in the world, more than at any time in human history. Uh, in, In America, racial tension is perhaps the worst it's been in decades, and same with the income gap. So where is the church in the midst of all of this? Did you know that historically, you know, in America and abroad, not, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to pick on America, but the church has been one of the worst purveyors uh, of injustice and oppression. Did you know this? Do some Googling. Like, you can find a lot of pretty crazy stuff. Uh, we are spectacularly good uh, at turning a blind eye or even justifying injustice. How? Justin and I have, have been reading a book uh, on the Beatitudes, uh, a book called Words from the Hill, um, for this series. And, and one reason uh, in the book mentioned is that you know, churches, we often pay attention to you know, our doctrines and, and creeds of belief, uh, as far as belief, salvation, who God is, who God is et cetera. Uh, and we kind of lull ourselves into thinking that it's all we need, messy, and can skip over passages like like the Beatitudes, uh, you know, it's so messy and, and really kind of hard to understand, and it's so upside down. 
Um, you know, that we can, we can think, you know, I'll just think that I can just believe in God and not really change anything. You know, I can just keep building my own kingdom. And that's cool. Uh, you know, I don't want to get things too messy. Um, but the thing is, you know, we, we, we can't ignore the, the words of Jesus, um, what his real, the real heart, you know, of his message really is. And, the th- you know, the thing is, God isn't asking us to fix all of the world's problems. You know, maybe some of us will have uh, life or work opportunities to address, you know, some of these huge macro issues like we just talked about. Uh, but for, for most of us, I would say, you know, we have to really think and act locally. You know, are you seeing the people around you? Is there someone who's, you know, deeply hurting or lonely, you know, in the seat next to you? You know, or maybe at work. Maybe it's a fellow parent that you know. Uh, do you know someone who's been given, you know, a raw deal in life uh, and you could be an advocate or help them in practical ways? Uh, do you know somebody or, 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 you know, groups that you see being marginalized or undignified? You know, I, I personally don't, I don't think I see a lot of refugees currently in Morgantown, but I know that there's a lot of ethnic diversity that could really use a friend in this town. Um, our homeless population isn't great in Morgantown, but prob- probably better than most large cities, but it's still a need. Um, I know that there's a large percentage of people who, though, who are, who are barely getting by and feel like, feel not good enough, feel like they're not going to be able to make it. You know, what's the population of orphaned or at-risk children around here? I, I honestly don't know. Um, what about students who are in, like, the most vulnerable time of their life? Yeah, you know, bring up these things because I th- I think we have such an opportunity to build up people, and I think I really think that the beatitudes and this this message, this mission of reconciliation that Jesus has given us, it's meant to to really pull us outward, to take our eyes you know <laughs> off of ourselves, off from just looking down, but but to really really see people. You know, maybe you're. You are the one who feels like you're poor in spirit. Maybe you need to humble yourself like David um, and come before the Lord and also allow someone else to help carry your burden. Uh, Jeremiah 22.3 says, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. I think we always tend to think about sins of commission. We think, I'm not an adulterer. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not that bad. Jesus, you know, God can't be that mad at me. Um, not, that, not that God is mad at you. We're all sinners. But what about, what about sins, of, sins of omission? A couple passages here, James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We see in Luke 10, the story of, of the Good Samaritan. Um, there's a guy lying on the, the side of the road. He's injured. He's been robbed. And, and two men pass by and, and do nothing. You know, we know this story. But the third man stops, helps him, and proves that you know, he was the one who did the right thing. Uh, the, the two guys who did nothing, uh, you know, it's considered that they, he 25, committed a sin of omission. In, in Matthew 25, going back to um, Jesus' sermon, um, 
Jesus is, is talking about uh, the end of time when he'll be separating the sheep from the wolves. And, um, you know, the, those who, who are not going to be with him says, Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. We see in, in James uh, chapter 2, this is, this is the works chapter, uh, very, very well-known passage. Um, James says, as the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It's, it's this idea that, yes, we, we aren't saved by our efforts, uh, only by the righteousness of Christ. Again, it's right standing. We, we can't earn it on our own. James, though, is saying real faith will produce this fruit of works. It'll produce compassion. It will produce love for another. That real faith will always produce um, the, the evidence of works, um, not vice versa. We can't earn righteousness. We have to receive it from Christ, and we share it. That's the model that he uh, painted for us, uh, and that is... That's really, in, in many ways, what it means to, to follow him. We see in, in John 13, 35, um, Jesus again speaking, recounted, uh, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, the, the worship team can come back up. Um, we're going to conclude. So here's the connecting thought. Of, of all the different layers of the onion, of all the different layers uh, of righteousness, this understanding of, of right standing, of peace, of justice. It's all the same essence. It's all righteousness. It's God's desire for us, for reconciliation, for, for the world, for reconciliation. Um, it's what God's mission is, that, that he is, is working out, that, you know, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Uh, we know this. So really the connecting thought for all of us, uh, when, it comes, when it comes to hunger and thirst for righteousness, this passage, the connecting thought is, what do you ache for? You know, think about that. What do you ache for? What do you hunger and thirst for? What do you crave? Is it to come before Christ and rest in his righteousness? Or are we aching to try to fix everything and try to earn righteousness? Are we aching for injustice or are we more interested in our own selfish kingdoms? Do we ache for peace? Does our hearts break for those hurting around us? You know, like the song we sang earlier, um, you know, are we willing to pray, God, break my heart for what breaks yours? Do we hunger and thirst to see the saving gospel shared and our souls and world reconciled, whole, and redeemed? You know, guys, we can know that God is with us. He's the one who redeems us, and, and he's walking alongside, alongside us as he sends us to be the reconcilers of righteousness. So if you'll, if you'll take a moment with me, uh, we're going to pray real quick. If you'll bow your heads. We can be here to Lord, thank you so much that we can be here to, to hear your message of reconciliation. 
Thank you that we don't have to earn it on our own because we never could, that we can have right standing with you, Jesus, because you are our righteousness. You are perfect. You are holy. And you ask us to come and rest in you. And then you take us by the hand and you just simply ask us to follow you. When we see the brokenness in the world, we, we experience pain. But as, as you've, you've shown us through your Sermon on the Mount, Lord, that, that you are with us, that you are on our side when we feel like everything is against us, when we feel like everything is falling apart, that it's often in those moments when we hit rock bottom, uh, not to be cliche, but we find out that you are the rock at the bottom and that you are with us. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And I, I pray that we would just come to a deeper understanding that you don't want our efforts, our methods, anything. God, that you simply are just desiring our hearts and you're asking us to come humbly before you, uh, broken like David. Just saying, God.